Blog Talk Radio. Hello and welcome to New Business Paradigms, conscious commentary on business and society. I'm Matt Renner, the Executive Director of the World Business Academy, and I'll be co-hosting today's program along with Ronaldo Brutico. Ronaldo is the President of the World Business Academy, and I'm the Academy's Executive Director. The World Business Academy is a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to transforming the consciousness of business leaders, business students, and the public at large in order to inspire business to take responsibility for the whole of society. To find out more about our work and to connect with us, please visit our website, www.worldbusiness.org, or email us at info at worldbusiness.org. On today's show, we'll be speaking with David Cobb, lawyer, activist, and Green Party presidential candidate in 2004. Cobb is currently a spokesperson for Move to Amend, a national coalition calling for a constitutional amendment to abolish corporate personhood, which is the legal doctrine that allows corporations to overturn democratically enacted laws and shape the political system to favor the largest businesses and subjugate medium and small businesses and entrepreneurs. After the interview, Ronaldo and I are going to discuss some unique trends in the energy sector that the Academy's Energy Task Force is following and the implications for the global energy sector and the growing impacts of climate change. But first, Ronaldo, let's talk about a few recent items in the news, including the recent actions of the Federal Reserve and the economics of immigration reform, student loans, and the health reform bill. Well, thank you, uh, Matt. And uh, I know you're coming into the show from New York. I hope you're doing well with the heat wave back there. Uh, you're getting a first-hand opportunity to see what climate change looks like up close after it's Superstorm hot. Sandy. Now comes the heat. <laughs> it is very hot. Yeah, it's very hot. And um, I, it, here's a quick one on the Federal Reserve. Uh, there's no the, the, the ridiculous thing about this is there's no new information here. Uh, Bernanke and the Fed have been telegraphing for six months, and we've been reporting on this show, that come October, November, they're going to ease off of the amount of buying under QE3. Uh, right now they're doing $85 billion a month, I believe, and uh, they're not going to go to zero. It's, they're going to step it down a little bit because the oil companies are trying to generate inflationary pressures at the pump and because the Fed wants to slow it back and let a little bit of inflation in but not a lot. And the Fed's primary goal is to try and do what they can to reduce unemployment. Uh, on that subject, by the way, unemployment was just projected by the Eurobloc to continue to be high in 2014. The same will be true for America. In America, the principal reason it'll be high is because the Americans continue to shoot themselves in the foot. Uh, I was interested in a uh, report just yesterday by uh, the Civil Engineering Society of America, the president, which, who, which said basically in water pipes alone we have $9 billion of reconstruction to do. And for those who haven't heard, over 200,000 people in St. George's County, which is directly adjacent to Washington, D.C., the nation's capital, are going to be without water of any kind for five days. That's a remarkable statement in a modern industrial nation. And that level of deterioration of our infrastructure is what's going on in every aspect of society. We know about bridge collapses. You're going to see many more of them. We know about water main breaks. You're going to see more of them. We know about um, the inability to provide adequate amount of fire retardant over forest fires because we only have a couple of planes capable of dumping large quantities of, of um, fire retardant when we should have fleets of them. So, I mean, there's many, many different ways to look at the crumbling of American infrastructure, which is a tragedy in itself. But we also know that if we were to repair that infrastructure, it would lead to an economic boom, drop the unemployment rate by probably 1% to 2%, and uh, create an opportunity for uh, exciting future economic growth. That said, 
what the what the, what the is doing is nothing inconsistent with what he's been telegraphing all along. The market overreacted, the bond market dropped precipitously. It's it's come back a little ways. I still urge people to stay out of bonds because the long-term trend between now and November is that the bond market will continue to deteriorate, and past November, I think it will deteriorate even more so. So I don't see getting into bonds, meaning even as the interest rate they will pay you for a bond goes up, the face amount of that bond will go down over time. Therefore, I'm not recommending bonds. I know there is a difference of opinion on that in some quarters, but um, I'm pretty sure I'm right about it. In fact, I want to report um, in a $250,000 account, using that as a rough number, uh, uh, if you had a $250,000 of bonds on a particular given day you and you sold them all, you would have actually, what I said, within four days, you would have made over $7,000, which is a return of 3%, almost 3% in literally four days. Uh, I stand by the fact that I gave people the right warning. I'm glad I took my advice and sold. And uh, there's turns out there's a couple of accounts where I had some more I wasn't aware of, which I will be selling shortly. And um, I'm out of the bond market, and, and for no surprising reason. Uh, I'd like to talk a second for, about the student loan policy. I think that it is tragic and insane economics that uh, we have let the student loan rate double or more than double in a world where banks can borrow at 0.25% or a quarter of 1%, why are we charging students over 6% on student loans when we want to encourage people, at this particular time in history particularly, to increase their educational ability so that they can have better paying jobs and so that the United States can have a technological competitiveness in the global environment? It yeah. is the worst kind of economic policy to let those rates rise. Uh, Senator Elizabeth Warren, who's been fighting that and has been joined now by, I think, uh, Republican John McCain, uh, there's no question they got to roll that back. It's just crazy. It's bad for students. It's bad for their parents. And frankly, it's an inappropriate way for the government to profit off of the backs of students when and what we should be doing is encouraging education, not making it less affordable. So I'm yeah. hoping people will follow that, and I'm hoping they will speak to their their their, their advisors and, and, and their politicians about it. I want to say one so, thing about student loans, Ronaldo. Uh, as a relatively young person, you know, I, I am very much in touch with the younger people who are just getting out of college now, and so many of them have these debt burdens from student loans that are incredibly high just because of the recent rise in tuition across the board. Um, to add on top of that, doubling the interest rate is just unacceptable in terms of any kind of sane economics trying to encourage people to take an investment in their future. Now they're going to be stuck with burdens that are even higher and compounding. So I agree with you. I think that's a, a, a totally bad policy and something that needs to change immediately. Yeah, and, 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 and let's separate two things. One, I just want to say for the record, as a business person, I think it's immoral. It's certainly immoral to take our youngest and hopefully best prospects for the future, our well-educated young people, people who needed student loans to get through college and graduate school, and penalize them at a rate that's literally 25 times higher than what we charge the banks to borrow from the government. 25 times. So that's immoral. And it's also stupid. It's a very bad way to run an economy, and what it does is it soaks up dollars from these from these young people and keeps them from being productive members of society earlier. For example, new family formations, I believe, are down, and I'm not the only one who thinks this, because people can't pay off their student loans, so they can't go plunk down money on an 
on a condo or a townhouse or a home. So they hold off new family formations, which is a depressant on the economy because it not only keeps the real estate uh, market somewhat um, re- 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 restrained, but it also causes people not to buy refrigerators, stoves, rugs, drapes, etc. So new household formation is a key building block of the economy. As, you, as you're about to hear later in the show, it's going very, very well. And one of the reasons it's going well is because investors realize that we have more people than we have adequate housing stock for. That said... There still is an additional breaking, B-R-A-K, breaking factor going on with the housing market, which are these enormous student loan debts. And so it's bad economics, it's immoral, it's not appropriate, and why would I be able to let Bank of America borrow at 0.25% and charge 6.5% to a student? Go figure that one out on either morality or economic grounds. It doesn't make sense. Two other things I want to hit real quickly, Mac, while we got time. One is I'm delighted to see a report out of New York uh, this morning in the New York Times reported that the cost of an individual person's buying health care as a result of Obamacare will be approximately 50% less than it was this year. I want to repeat that. Because of Obamacare, approximately 50% less expense for individuals buying health care. The savings to small yeah. it's tremendous. The savings to small businesses won't be as great, but they will also be. And the other thing that's going to happen for small business in New York is because they, the way the insurance companies would play the game to get you pay more, they've got like hundreds of varieties of small business packages. Now there's going to be like three or four, and you're going to be able to compare apples to apples. And so small, I'm going to suggest to you that absent the rate of inflation, and remember we've been seeing skyrocketing increases every year in health care costs, I believe you're going to see them plateau out and probably go negative for the next two to three years as the insurance companies scramble to get their business house in order. They've been gouging for too long. Obamacare is the end of the gouge period. Now, I'm, I understand why the administration delayed for one year the implementation of the employer mandate. They did not delay the mandate on individuals. I think that's great. I think that there's going to be hiccups unquestionably along the way to implementing Obamacare, but clearly Obamacare is going to turn out to be economically a huge, huge benefit to the country, and most importantly, it's going to begin to slow down these bankruptcies that have been flooding our federal courts from people whose only crime was they got sick. So if you want to see fewer bankruptcies filed, if you want to see consumers able to keep more of their money, if you want to see the medical billing system finally put under control, Stand back and give a round of applause. And it's not just New York, it's California. Every state that's implementing Obamacare is going to see significant savings for their citizens, and I think that's just delightful. One more that I'm going to quit, and that is immigration reform. One of the things I don't see enough of when I look at the immigration reform debate is the economics. Are people aware that creating a pathway to citizenship for the 11 million illegal people in this country is a huge financial win for the rest of us? Now, if you aren't aware of that, you should be. In other words, when we legalize these people over a period of time, we bring them out of the dark, out of the shadows, the increases in property taxes, sales taxes, income taxes that we will receive are huge. And we're talking many billions of dollars. We're not talking chump change here. So for an economy that's still trying to figure out how to get its unemployment rate down, for an economy that's still trying to figure out how to, how to blend people who are willing to do low-paying jobs with the rest of us who aren't willing to do them. Okay, if for economy still working for at, at some sense of fairness when you've got families that it would otherwise be separated. When you're looking at all of these issues, don't forget 
that if we push immigration reform through, as people as diverse, again, as John McCain and President Obama have said, when you push this through, you get a huge economic win, totally apart from the fact that's the moral thing to do. Why do I come back to morality in both uh, the student loan issue and on, on immigration? For one simple reason. Where did we get off as a society accepting that it's okay for business to act immorally? As business people, we have an obligation to act morally. In fact, I'm going to go further than that. When you hear from David Cobb later in the show today on the move to amend, one of the things I'll be talking to him about is the necessity for a corporation to serve society if it is to maintain its legitimacy. Think about that as you think about immigration reform, as you think about um, the benefits of Obamacare, and as you think about how doing the right thing, student loans, how doing the right thing actually is good for you in your pocketbook, even if you're not a student, even if you're not an illegal immigrant, even if you were not uninsured previously. Yeah. Well, on the morality point, I think there's also an intangible value there uh, that often gets lost when we talk just about the hard numbers. So, first of all, the, the, the Congressional Budget Office's estimate that a comprehensive immigration reform, as the bill stands now, would lower the deficit by $175 billion over nine years is pretty impressive on its own. But what you're talking about, which I totally agree with, is taking undocumented workers and offering them a pathway to citizenship also inspires a, a loyalty and a, and, a, and a love of this country that they have in their hearts if we were just to welcome them. And welcoming them inspires the economy. I mean, when we talk about the economy, we're talking about a person-to-person, -person individualized economy in a lot of ways. And right now, keeping those people subjugated and in fear doesn't do much except hurt the economy. And, you know, maybe they pay a little extra in Social Security taxes that they never get back. But we want them to be, if they're doing work in this country, we want them to be recognized and taken care of. Yeah, and, and by the way, I didn't even compute in those numbers, nor did the, nor did the, uh, the Congressional Budget Office. I did not compute the increased economic activity that would result when those 11 million people don't have to worry about being thrown out of the country. They don't have to send 100% of their disposable income back to Mexico. Because yeah. right now they've got to send the money back there or they won't have a place to land when they get thrown out. So when you give people a chance to buy into the system, you know, it's amazing, as, as, as President Obama observed a couple of days ago, people were afraid of what um, the Italians would do if we let them into the country in the turn of the last century. And we did. I'm, an, I'm a full 100% Italian, and I can say I don't, I, don't, I don't experience any discrimination anymore. I don't see people who are traditional white, Caucasian, Eastern um, daughters of the American Republic looking at me and saying, you're not making an economic contribution because you're Italian. You shouldn't have been allowed to hear 100 years ago when your people started coming. The right. same thing was said about the Irish, and you know, particularly in Boston was as felt. And of course... The, the Irish are now considered the, one of the backbone subcultures in our country. The same thing was said about the Asians when they came and were brought here as coolie laborers to build the railroads or to plantation workers in Hawaii. No one says, gee, I'm sorry that we allowed Asians in the country. We would have been better off without them. So what people have to remember is we are a nation of immigrants. Actually, that's our strength. And one of the things we've done as a nation of immigrants is we've been able to maintain a common identity called Americans in the face of this incredible polyglot culture we keep building. The Hispanic addition, which is what's being challenged by the people who are anti-immigration reform, that Spanish is, is going to become the dominant culture in this country. 
It is insane to be talking about the fact we're going to try to somehow restrict the dominant culture, which is becoming the dominant culture. Uh, you know, white Americans are no longer a majority and won't ever be again. So why on earth would you try to build this resistance instead of saying, okay, what's the most logical way to put a glide slope in for these people so they can take their fair share of the American dream and they can add to it so that in generations to come, they will be everybody as accepted as I am, frankly. And to me, that's not only morality, that's smart economics and certainly smart politics. Now, one last comment I want to make. This show is heard, fortunately, by a lot of people around the world. When you hear me focus on these issues in America, please know one of the reasons I'm doing it is because it's easier for me to be critical in America than it is for me to be critical of what other countries are doing. I'm observing and watching closely, as many of you are, what's going on in, in Europe right now, particularly with the xenophobia against Muslims. I'm looking carefully at what's gone on for centuries with the Romi, the, 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 with, 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 with people who are uh, basically for hundreds of years been uh, marginalized uh, because of their lifestyle choice and because of who they are as a, as a tribal force, the so-called gypsies or Roma people. Uh, so to me, I'm really not giving you a fair pass, Europe. I'm not giving you a pass in, for example, in Latin America. I could talk about some interesting cultural issues there. And I'm certainly not giving a pass to the Indians, who, of course, have a caste system, which has been one of the worst things that they've been trying to overcome for at least, well, since at least 1947. I'm not giving anybody a pass. The reason I'm talking about the Americans in this context is because I think it's a great object lesson and because I feel safer as a person living in America casting this question mark out there for Americans to deal with. And I'm hoping if Americans deal well with it, it will shine a light that other countries will choose to, to, to emulate. That's really the, the source of why it's an American-centric comment from my point of view, even though the issue, frankly, is much broader. Uh, I'm going to have one last thing I want to talk about on the, on the news suite before we go to our okay. guest, and that is I'm really excited that the European banking system and the European political system is cracking down on the big banks. Uh, in case you didn't see it a couple of weeks ago, they said they're going to raise the standards on those too-big-to-fail banks in terms of their capital requirements. They're, they're stepping up where the American government should and didn't, and because of the global nature of the economy, the Europeans do it, doing it will give the Americans a benefit as well. So kudos to the banks and to the central banking system in Europe for that. Number two, kudos to Europe for the, la the last couple of days literally telegraphing they're going to start limiting – the egregious fees credit card companies charge for things for which they should charge no fee at all or reduced fees. Europe has signaled they're going to go after Europe Visa and MasterCard on egregious, non-appropriate fees. Those are huge sources of revenue to the major banks. I'm delighted the Europeans are willing to tackle it. Thank you, Europe, for taking the lead. I'm sure Senator Warren, Elizabeth Warren, is applauding even as we watch these movements, because it supports what she's trying to do in America. And with that, I'll close on what happened yesterday in the Senate. I am delighted that the boycott for two years of the nominee to run the Consumer Protection Bureau, which has held that bureau locked frozen, so it couldn't step forward the way the Europeans are doing, that nomination was held up not because there was anything wrong with the nominee who passed with a 66 vote today, but yesterday, but the, the the reason it was held up was because the Republicans were fighting a year rear guard action to try and gut the Consumer Protection Agency, which did pass Congress and which was signed by the president. I want to just telegraph to all political participants, Democrats, Republicans, and Independents: 
it's not appropriate to go back and gut a law by refusing to approve the nominee of a president unless there's a valid problem with that nominee. If you want to remove the agency, go try. Go try and, 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 and deactivate that agency if you think you've got the political power to do it. If you don't, enough with this using the filibuster as a way to control the government by a tyranny of the minority. Now, I am sorry, frankly, that Reed didn't go all the way with the filibuster reform. I think that to have a filibuster, you should be forced to stand on your feet and talk so the American public can see what you have to say, and you should be free to make a fool of yourself. I'm very sad that even in its strongest articulation of reducing the filibuster rules, they were only talking about reducing them for judicial for, uh, for uh, presidential nominees, not for judicial appointments and not for legislation. I want to send a message to Harry Reid, which I think he started to get recently, which is why he took a stand finally. We are fed up, Senator Reid, with the way you're running the United States Senate. We are totally fed up with it. And we are calling upon you to step up in a meaningful way now. The institution you are leading is not just becoming increasingly meaningless. It's becoming increasingly obstructive. It is standing in our pathway as a free democracy, and you must be willing to do your job. Or, Senator Reid, I urge you to step aside so someone can. Now, having said that, I'm delighted that the Consumer Protection Agency is finally going to have leadership and that the four other nominees, uh, the four nominees are going to get through. Yeah. Um, no comment on the Labor Relations Board, too, that are going to get dropped. But I do want to end with this comment, and that is the Consumer Protection Agency is not something that the, the quote, liberals or progressives are doing to hobble business. To the contrary, as a businessman, I am delighted with the creation of the Consumer Protection Agency because it's going to help me as a businessman do a better job. It's going to help society grow and prosper, which means my marketplace will grow and prosper. So as a self-aware and somewhat enlightened business person, I am delighted we're getting ahead to it, and it's about time. So those of you on whatever political spectrum who think you're protecting business by keeping that agency gutted, you weren't. You were hurting business. I'm delighted we're going to move forward. That's it for the roundup. Yeah. So that that segues nicely to our guest because one of the big issues and one of the things that's kept uh, financial reform and other uh, major distortions in the market in, in favor of large business is undue political influence and money in politics. So I want to in introduce David Cobb. Uh, David Cobb is a lawyer, an activist, and Green Party presidential candidate in 2004. He's currently the spokesperson for Move to Amend, which is a national coalition calling for a constitutional amendment to abolish corporate personhood and to end the legal conflation of money being considered speech. David, welcome to the to New Business Paradigms. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be with y'all. And David, I just uh, the way I always do this, I like to declare my my um, uh, my connection. I've been a member of Move to Amend, the group you lead or are spokesman for, since the day it was formed. I have gone on record, as my listeners know, a month and a half before Citizens United was decided, saying that if it were decided against um, the public, it would be uh, the beginning of the end of the American democracy as we know it. I believe, having seen Citizens United, the case which permits unlimited government money in politics, um, personal corporate money in politics, because it makes corporations citizens, which they're not, I think it's the worst case, one of the wor three worst cases of all time. And I know you've been speaking about it as a lawyer. Tell us a little bit about where the Move to Amend stands. Well, let's uh, back up just a moment and recognize that Move to Amend is calling for the abolition of two illegitimate court-created legal doctrines. 
And I want to start by really underscoring that the court created these doctrines. This is judicial activism at its worst for those folks who believe that courts should only be interpreting law rather than making law. That's point number one. Uh, the, the idea, though, that a corporation, which is an artificial entity created in order to do business, has inherent and alienable rights, perverts the entire democratic republican form of government. Human beings have constitutional rights because we are living, breathing, thinking, sentient creatures that are acknowledged to have been created uh, with inherent unalienable rights. Any artificial entity, whether it's a for-profit corporation, a non-profit corporation, a, a union, a, a, a partnership, any artificial entity created under the laws are act actually only have whatever privileges uh, we have decided to give them. Now, it is true that the corporation specifically the for-profit corporation, is an incredible tool to generate wealth uh, to, and to do things. And I'm not against that. In fact, I'm for that. However, it is inappropriate to say that this artificial entity has inherent unalienable constitutional rights because that allows corporate lawyers to come into court and overturn democratically enacted laws. So public well, health and, that, and, and, and just and just say for they have just say we're there for a second. It's also insane because a corporation can't die. Well, that's right. So, so if I'm allowed to die as a person, which is one of the reasons under American Anglo-American jurisprudence we we have a predilection against unlimited control for for more than a lifetime and being plus 21 years. It's called the rule against perpetuities. There's an exception for corporations to those rules because they're not people. If you're going to tell me they're people, then they should be subjected to the same rules or worse, frankly. I mean, they have an advantage that I don't have as a human. In other words, corporations now have more rights than people do. So it's not just well, that people, the corporations aren't people. They're, get, they're getting treated better than people. Do you agree? Sure. I mean, it seems to me that isn't, isn't the heart of the move to amend campaign to bring some sanity to how we hold what corporations are and the, and the role they have in society? Well, again, I'll back up a moment and share with your listeners the notion of a corporation is created under state law. And that state law has been used to, for 100 years in this country was used to facilitate public infrastructure projects. That was the only reason that limited liability was even allowed. That business and commerce uh, was allowed, but the idea of limited liability – uh, limiting legal liability was only allowed if there were very specific public tangible benefits to it. And even when that public tangible benefit uh, was, was evident to the corporation, uh, it, the charter itself only lasted 5, 10, at most 20 years. Uh, as you know, as a lawyer, and although the, the, the notion of a corporation lasting forever is actually a new one. For the first hundred years in this country, corporate charters were, in fact, very limited. And not only limited in time, but limited in scope. All they could do was the specific type of public benefit that they had been identified to do. And if they did any other type of business, they were revoked for going ultra virus, or in Latin, beyond the authority of why the political process had allowed them to be created. So I completely agree with your assessment about putting some sanity back into the commerce, because at the end of the day, Human beings, business people like yourself, like most of your listeners, you know, I suspect because of this program, you know, that's the heart and soul of the commerce of this country. But these huge transnational corporations, 
they're not actually uh, creating any jobs. In fact, they're net losers of jobs in this economy, uh, not losing like, oops, where they go, loss, but actually intentional, deliberate efforts to ship manufacturing jobs overseas, uh, whereas locally owned, independently operated businesses where human beings who are our neighbors and our friends and our family members doing commerce in our local communities are the only thing holding up this society, quite frankly. Uh, the more we see the corporatization of our economy, the more we see spiraling wages, the more we see uh, spiraling environmental protections and public health. I mean, the corporatization of America is actually the death of the American dream. So I completely agree with you. Well, well, and let, I especially, go ahead. Go ahead, go ahead. Especially what – I want to just – I just want to say I especially appreciate what uh, in the, in the, in the RAPA or in the, the news survey, you reminding us of the morality associated with decisions around student loans or immigration reform. And it is immoral to say that an artificial entity uh, has the inherent unalienable constitutional rights of living, breathing human beings. It's just flat wrong. It is wrong, and I'll tell you, you gave a very – I heard David speak, um, although I knew of David's work before, and I heard him speak recently, and I thought it was delightful. And I'm going to ask you, David, as I did before the call, I'd love to work on a – an, argument, an article we could publish because you and I are one of the two few, two few, few people I know who talk um, articulately about the history of how corporations came into being. And I just want to focus on something David said, which I want everybody to understand, which is why the move to amend is your battle. It's not someone else's battle. Corporations were started originally, if you go back to the 1600s even, with the salt monopoly. Um, they were started to serve some public benefit or good. When they ceased to do that, they actually ceased to exist because their function had been fulfilled. If they went beyond the charter they were given, if you were given the salt monopoly, that's all you could do was sell salt for the king, and you went ultra-virus, which is the word that David just used in Latin, meaning beyond the scope of your charter, you were, you were slant practice. It was a jailable offense in the early days. So my point is we need to look at, David, why it is, how it is that corporations went from what they were designed to do, which was to do something useful to society, for society, and, and, and for that we gave them this limited liability form, we gave them uh, a certain amount of, in, uh, of, 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 of longevity, which could transcend the lifetime of a being in life plus 21 years. When we gave them these exceptions, it, we did so so they could do something for public good. And one of, the pro, one of the principles of our organization, the Business Academy, for 27 years is that the, if a company or business is not serving some public benefit, it has no moral right to exist and shouldn't, frankly. So the pursuit of profits for profit's sake is inherently not only immoral in my mind, it's actually bad economics because you end up making bad decisions. What I'd like to do is ask you to just illuminate a little bit what you just said about how public benefit was their principal goal when corporations really began to be developed, and I'm thinking in the last century and the current one. Well, I mean, I, the, the difference between the last century in this country and the current one in terms of the, the role of the corporation could not be more uh, clear. As you point out, Ronaldo, that in this country, the original corporate – I mean, remember, business and commerce was encouraged uh, after the founding of this country. However, the corporate form was very tightly politically controlled. It only, only granted if there was a specific public need that was going to be met through that limited liability corporation. And in fact, let's just underscore 
how politically controlled they were. This is what the founders' original intent, for those folks who claim to be concerned about the founders thinking around this issue. But the founders not only politically controlled limited liability corporations in their operation, they controlled them in their creation. For example, in order to even apply for the incredible privilege, not the right, but the incredible privilege of limited liability incorporation, your application didn't go to a trivial clerk. Your application went directly to the state house of representatives where they discussed, debated, and voted on it, and you had to get a majority vote. But that's hey, wait, 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 David, David, that's really important, and I'm glad you brought up this exactly what I was looking for. Tell people what year that was. <laughs> well, that was from the founding of this country in 1789 and for the next hundred years, Ronaldo. I mean, more than 100, actually. More than 100 years. In other words, we had it right when the founders understood what they were doing with corporations. And this judicial activism you talked about at the outset of your comments, which is creating a whole new set of legal doctrines, has nothing to do with anything the founders ever believed or possible or understood. In fact, I would go even further. It's not just that it doesn't have anything to do with. It is actually counter to... The, the founders' notion of a democratic republican form of government. And in Jefferson's word, the idea of the yeoman farmer actually engaging in both commerce and investment and in industry in a way that actually empowers actual individuals. What we're seeing actually uh, is not even just the 1%, Ronaldo, but a small fraction of you know, 0.00832% or something that are consolidating ever more wealth, power, and decision-making authority. We don't even have a functioning democracy in the United States. We have plutocracy where a small, wealthy elite are utterly in control of every single one of the institutions in this country. And let's point out, I'm glad to have this opportunity to talk with you and your colleague uh, on this radio program, but let's just acknowledge that it's because you've created this. You're in the nature of a modern electronic pamphleteer. The reality is that corporations have utterly, completely taken over media institutions in this country to completely filter what we the people actually are able to even hear and know about. Corporations have taken over the healthcare institutions. They've taken over the military institutions as Republican President Dwight D. Eisenhower warned about the military-industrial complex. I mean, in every single way, we are seeing a concentration of wealth, decision-making, and power in this country in fewer and fewer hands. That is anti-American, Ronaldo. Hey, by the way, I just thank you for bringing up David Eisenhower, because Eisenhower is somebody I've studied a great deal and actually written about. And, uh, and, and for those people who don't know the reference that David just made, uh, with Dwight Eisenhower, who was not only – one of the key participants as as one of the leading generals in World War II. Uh, clearly, he reported to General Marshall, who was the chief of staff. But but Eisenhower, uh, because of his position in, in, in the command, Supreme command, Allied Commander in Europe, was not only one of our great generals, he became then a president. And he decided to follow the example of another great general and president, and that was George Washington. So on the end of his second term, Eisenhower gave a farewell address to the nation as I as 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 Washington had done at the beginning of the founding of the Republic. And in his farewell remarks, he did not make a passing reference to the military-industrial complex. I urge you to read the speech. It's all about it. In other words, what Eisenhower said, as having been, the, having been blessed to have been a general to lead you and a president who has led you, and now having watched from both sides of this equation, I must warn you, that the aggregating power of the military-industrial and the added academic complex 
will destroy your democratic institutions if you're not vigilant and rein them in. I can see it happening now. That was the entire speech. That wasn't just one throwaway line. That's what he spent 20 minutes warning us about because the tradition of, 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 of General Washington was when you leave the office, you're supposed to tell the people what you learned in the eight years you were there that they need to know as your successor takes over. That's what Eisenhower warned the American public, and unfortunately, his warning went unheeded. Look at the damage it's already done. What David's saying is, apart from whatever your positions politically are on the role America should pay with force of arms in the world, look at the corporatization of international conglomerates that basically have no loyalty to this country or anybody else, who are supranational, who are beyond a sovereign reach. Those companies, because of what we're creating in this country, are wreaking havoc not only on our social, economic, and political systems, but they're literally burning the planet up from climate change. That's what we need to look at. And, we, and the Citizens United decision, which must be reversed, is basically allowing unlimited amounts of corporate money into politics and creating this fictional doctrine that corporations are people, which is the exact opposite. Corporations are servants of the people created for an explicit beneficial purpose. When they fail to have that, they should sunset out as they originally did, hundred years or more ago. So, David, let me ask that? you a quick question. Yeah, uh, I want to. I want to ask now. Basically, where does rubber hit the road? I think. I think it's very clear what the problem is and how this has been established. But now the question is, what is Move to Amend doing now, and how can our listeners be invo involved with your work? David, are you still there? Oh, we lost David. Let me see if I got him back. Hey, David, are you still there? Okay, good. Now we can yeah, hear you. Yeah, I'm here. Okay, Sorry, great. go ahead. So uh, thank you for the opportunity for the specific call to action of your listeners, which is to say now that you realize how the court has inappropriately hijacked our Constitution, we have to recognize that you can't fix it legislatively because the court has inappropriately overturned the McCain-Feingold legislation. They have inappropriately overturned the state laws that controlled campaign financing, and they have illegitimately created two doctrines, not one but two, corporate constitutional rights and money is speech. These two together are the problem. The only way to solve this is to solve it the way the prior decisions that Ronaldo mentioned as some of the worst in the history of this country, and that is via constitutional amendment. Now, we recognize that an amendment to the United States Constitution is a heavy political lift. It's going to require a mass, broad, deep social movement that is the equivalent of the American Revolution, the women's suffrage movement, the abolitionist movement, and the civil rights movement. So we are educating, agitating, and organizing. And any listener of this program who wants to get involved, go to the website, www.movetoamend.org, and sign up so we can be in touch with you. Ronaldo, we didn't even exist before 2010. Today we have over 300,000 active participants, and we're growing. We have over 175 local affiliates, people on the ground doing the work day by day to build this movement. We've helped to pass over 500 resolutions in support at city and county levels supporting the Move to Amend campaign. We have put this issue on the ballot in 28 jurisdictions, including in Republican-dominated jurisdictions in rural Wisconsin, rural Ohio. The entire state of Montana had a chance to vote on it. And guess what, Ronaldo? We've won every single one of those votes. This movement is getting larger, stronger, and better organized every day. 
We are rolling out a national listening project where our people will be going out, fanning out across the country, knocking on neighbors' doors to just have this conversation about the proper role of the corporation in society, inviting them to join the movement. We're going to be rolling out a Pledge to Amend campaign where we start going to uh, both elected officials and also candidates for office, not just for Congress, yes, Congress, but also state legislatures, county commissioner, city council, heck, dog catcher. I want to make this a political issue that is commensurate with how serious it is because the ruling elite has stolen our sacred right to self-government, and only a mass movement can get it back. Yeah, I, David, I, we're out of time, but I just want to put a quick plug in. Uh, I sent a check to move to amend because I know that my future is at stake if David succeeds with this effort. I urge you all to do the same. Even if you can only find a dollar, two dollars, five dollars, send something. Keep this movement going. Number two, sign up to be part of it. David, how many states have already taken action now? Sixteen? Sixteen states so far, 500 cities and counties. And, Ronaldo, I'm going to take you up on your offer. Let's talk offline. Let's write this piece up and get it out larger and broader to even more audiences. All right, so everybody's got, I think they know how to reach you. It's movetoamend.org, right? That's, That's right. correct, or call us, 707-269-0984. And I just want to end with this. David, I want to thank you because I know that you could have had a lucrative practice the last couple of years instead of what you're doing. You're a public servant. You're bright as the Dickens. You're one of the most informed people I've talked to on the whole the historical role of corporations. And I can't say enough good things about the Move to Amend campaign except to add one last thought, which is this. Don't think, folks, this is somebody else's fight. Actually, this is yours. You are actually trying to take a stand to recover the political process that the Founding Fathers were envisioning for us in 1776. Don't let those people have died in vain. Thanks, David, for all you're doing. Thank you so much. Bye now. Thanks, David. Yeah, and Ronaldo, David uh, mentioned the website and you repeated it, but I just want to let our listeners know that I've posted David's website, movetoamend.org, on our Facebook page. So if you're if you're a Facebook user, you can go to Facebook and search in, at the top of the page for World Business Academy. It'll take you to our homepage on Facebook, uh, our our Facebook fan page. And if you like our page, the first thing you'll see right now is a link to uh, movetoamend.org. And we post updates from our various projects on Facebook on a regular basis. Uh, also, if you if you want more information about anything we cover at the Academy, you can write into us, info at worldbusiness.org is the email address. You can also send us your questions about any topics we cover on the show or topics you'd like to see us cover in the future. Um, it's essential that you help us grow this audience because, as you've heard, this is some information that is, is very important for the business community and for essentially any citizen even if uh, you're not a business, not directly a business owner, these, these issues affect every level uh, of Americans. So if you can share this Facebook page, that'd be great. Also, if you can pass this link along to this show, we'd really appreciate it. Um, we're doing this as a public service. We don't, we don't, we don't take a, we, we don't get paid to do this. It's, it's, it's because we care about the content and are, are passionate about it. I think that comes through. Um, Renal, let's take a few minutes now to discuss some important developments in the energy sector that have been missed by most news organizations, uh, but are likely to be very important to the global economy. I'm thinking specifically of the the movement to divest from fossil fuels um, that's being sponsored by and pushed by the organization 350.org. Yeah, I, this is really critical uh, for everybody. I, 
I, I can't imagine people in the United States particularly haven't noticed that the price of gasoline is rising at the pump. Uh, it is probably also rising in other parts of the world, but I don't have access to street-level observations. I do know what the global oil prices are. And let me just share some good news and some bad news. First, the bad news. Folks, if you don't do anything about it, those prices will keep rising because they're being manipulated. The good news is if you do something about it, those prices are going to come down and you'll have all that extra money to spend. What do you need to do? All you need to do is to begin to sh just shave as little as 5% off of your driving in the United States of America, and you will watch the price of a barrel of oil start to drop. You will also watch for sure and see the price of a gallon of gasoline for drop to drop. By the way, another thing you should do, buy gas right now from independent stations. It's substantially cheaper than the brand stations. Why? Because in order to manipulate the price higher, the brand stations are forced to sell it at the highest price the oil companies can imagine the public will pay. But when they do that, the public doesn't buy up all the gas, so that they have to get rid of the gas through distribution to what are called independents. When you see a gap of more than four or five cents between the price of what independents charge and what the majors charge, it means that they're unloading excess refined capacity. By the way, today in California, that difference is more than a dime, so it means they're unloading capacity. Now, what I wanted to share with you, though, a couple of things that you might not know, is you might not know, and, and, and Matt alluded to Bill McKibben's work with 350.org. What Bill McKibben's been going around telling people to do is he's saying it's time to disinvest in oil company stocks. In fact, he's saying in all carbon stocks because these are, in his words, rogue companies. Now, what's interesting about McKibben's approach is, and I think he's absolutely correct, by the way, the, he wrote an article, if people want to know about it, in Rolling Stone magazine. And you know, Matt, we probably get permission from 350 to put that up on our site. It wouldn't be a bad idea to do it because it's got a lot of very useful information about climate change in it. But what, what McKibben's doing, and what I want you to be aware of, is he's saying that the, the balance sheet that the oil companies, the, the six largest oil companies in the world, the five or six largest, the balance sheet is false. It is actually these companies are not worth what they say they're worth because they're counting enormous quantities of oil that they have as reserves, which they believe they will be able to sell at $75 to $100 or more per barrel even though there won't be human civilizations to sell it to in 50 years because they will have burnt so much of the oil that they already have that that oil will have destroyed the climate. Now, how big is the factor of, of excess capacity in their balance sheets? According to McKibben, 80% of the asset value of the oil held in reserve by the major oil companies will never and can never be sold, 80%. Think of what would happen to Exxon stock once people realize that as much as 80% of their existing oil reserves are not saleable. It would plummet. What he's saying is, let's disinvest. Let's sell these stocks now before they plummet. So that's a good thing for your economics. But also because we know that when we disinvest from oil stocks, it puts pressure on the carbon, company, carbon fuel companies to change, just like it changed apartheid in South Africa. That's his whole premise. This is the time, and he's organizing colleges around the country and soon the population generally. I want to underscore, many of you know, have listened to this show for three years, I've never owned an oil company stock or a coal company stock or a natural gas producer stock. And the reason I haven't is for my own personal morality. I knew how to make money, and I do know how to make money buying and selling oil stocks because I follow them so closely. I write about it constantly. 
However, I don't do it because I don't want to make money that way. There's plenty of ways for me to make money that are legitimate, that serve the public interest. I cannot and have never been willing to buy oil, coal, or natural gas stocks. However, what I need to tell you is I do believe that that moral position of mine, which was based on my personal belief, doesn't have to be your personal belief. What you should know is I'm now giving you an additional piece of information that I haven't done up until now. And what I'm saying to you is I think the future of these carbon-based stocks is in jeopardy, not just because of what Bill McKibben's doing, although that will be part of it, because it is clear to me that the political control of the majors, particularly the oil company majors, is going to be weakened over time. And as it is weakened, what's going to happen is you're going to see renewable energy systems taking taking root and, and, and coming to the market much faster than they believe possible. They're doing everything they can to stop it, but basically Iceland is now 100% off of fossil fuel. Germany is ra- rapidly moving off of fossil fuel and will be there and nuclear and will be there very shortly. California's got the opportunity to do the same thing and has already moved up uh, about a third of its of its energy now is non-fossil fuel and non-nuclear. So you've got a whole lot of movement towards renewable energy which will be a sea change. And when that gets understood, and when Bill McKibben's number in the Rolling Stone article gets understood about the, the depressed values, the accurate values of those oil reserves and how they're way overvalued, what's going to happen is you're going to see these stocks tend to not do well over the long term. Therefore, even if you were willing to buy them on moral grounds, which I wasn't, I'm now telling you I don't think it's prudent. I think you can be doing better in the market looking for, for example, high-dividend yield-paying stocks that have a basis in the domestic economy. Walgreens is an example. But there are many high-dividend-paying stocks, which we've talked about in this show. I'm going back now at least five or six months ago. In fact, I did it once the year before that. And I started urging people, look at the dividend that a company pays and start evaluating whether that dividend is worth owning the stock. In a world where you get less than 1% for your savings, a, a reputable stock with good growth prospects, steady-as-you-go kind of a business that pays 2.5% in dividends, which is not a considered a high number, by the way. 25 would be considered a relatively acceptable number. Why wouldn't you take 2.5% from the dividend? Because when you do, if that company is stable and has a long-term business plan that you understand, it's entirely likely they will continue raising their dividend as inflation occurs, and their stock price will tend to outperform the averages because if they don't pay the dividend and all other things are equal, there's less reason to own the stock. If they do pay the dividend, there's more reason to own the stock. So for that reason, we're very pro-dividend at the World Business Academy, and we're, we're really positive on directing our listeners to those kinds of higher yielding, 2.5%, 3% dividend stocks that are safe, and get them out of things like the oil company stocks, which do pay the dividends, but which are at risk, I believe, over the long term to capital erosion, meaning the price of the stock will fall. Just if McKibben alone starts to make a dent, you're going to see those drop in value. But what about, for example, the companies that have been fracking all over the country for natural gas? What about those companies, which in fact are in some jeopardy because a number of states have already made fracking illegal, I'm hoping that it's illegal in every state soon because no single natural gas company 
is willing to tell you what those 50-plus chemicals are and the reason aren't independent tests indicate there are numerous carcinogens in what they're doing. In addition, we know that fracking, because of the reinjection of massive amounts of water, leads to earthquakes. Now, because fracking creates earthquakes and because fracking cr creates a migration of highly carcinogenic chemicals in the substrata of the earth, so the water you drink, and because if you look at gas land too, you can literally light your faucet on fire in some places, because of those reasons, fracking must come to an end. It's immoral. It should be illegal. There should be no exemption from the EPA for it, which there is. And if that exemption were lifted, if the, if the fracking industry had to absorb, had to abide by the same rules that every other industry does with regard to EPA, environmental protection, fracking couldn't exist for a day. Think about it, folks. It's only because they're allowed to poison your drinking water that they're allowed to do this. We don't need energy that bad from that source. We have unlimited hydrogen available to us, which is from renewable resources and able to be done today with today's technology at or below the price of gasoline. What are we so, doing fracking ourselves? Ronaldo, I, I think that we've covered the what we're seeing is a change in the consciousness both of consumers and governments around climate change uh, in terms of the use of fossil fuels. Uh, we've seen it in the business sector. We're seeing it in, even in the U.S. military. Uh, but there's another question. The other side of the balance sheet, in, in a sense, is the demand side, I mean, is the supply side. Uh, can you talk a little bit about the supply we're seeing coming online and how that might affect the, the oil sector at large? Yeah, I, I, thanks for doing that. Uh, because I, I want to talk about Kazakhstan here, Matt. I mean, people probably know that Iraq in the last two years has been ramping up oil production massively. And they probably expect that all the other countries that export oil are doing the same, Venezuela, et cetera. They know the Canadians have been racking it up. Look, they're blowing up trains in the Canadian in Canada because of, of, of the Bakken fracking that's gone on in the U.S. And because of – look at the oil shale uh, – tar sands, rather – um, uh, oil that's coming online, and God forbid if the Keystone pipelines is permitted, uh, you're going to see a, a dramatic jump in, in, in oil availability because of, of, of that bad decision. But what I want to talk about is Kazakhstan. People are not tracking the nation states that have adequate or substantial surplus oil reserves who are now coming online and who will be pumping their oil in competition with the majors. So it's not just that you've got countries that have been doing it forever, like Saudi Arabia and Venezuela, but now you've got a country like Kazakhstan, which I believe they're pumping out of the Caspian Sea. They've, they've, brought, they've brought part of the field online recently. I believe the rest of the field comes online in the beginning or in the first couple of quarters of 2014. But that oil find that the Caspian Sea represents to Kazakhstan is the biggest single oil find globally in about 40 years. It's a huge pool of oil. Now, wow. when that oil comes online, it creates more supply. Clearly what the Saudis can do is they can turn down the supply at Saudi Arabia and thereby control price. But what you're going to see is the scramble for all countries that need to put oil out, including Saudi Arabia, because if Saudi Arabia pumps too little, their monarchy will collapse. They have a lot of bills they got to pay. And by the way, as I've said on this show in prior prior episodes of this show, the Saudis really need to see oil at about ninety to one hundred dollars a barrel. So do the Russians. So anything that brings it down below that price causes Russia to get pinched, which is a totalitarian state, and the Saudi monarchy to get pinched, which is also a totalitarian state, but a somewhat more benign one. 
Now, having said, well, in some ways benign, in some ways less benign, frankly. So what we're looking at is increases of supply. We're looking at them, from, and frankly, unfortunately, from areas that are somewhat at risk environmentally more so than normal. And I would particularly point out that you're going to have begun to see the increases of supply off of Brazil from the deepest water wells that have ever been conceived by man. They're not online yet. When they come online, you're going to see a lot of oil coming out of there, as Kazakhstan will be doing in the next six months. So supply poised to increase, that tends to affect price. Demand, our switch to more efficient cars, dropping. And our ability to get to renewables, accelerating. Watch for hydrogen-based fuel cell cars in some quantity hitting the markets in 19, and I'm going to say in the model year 2016, 2017. You'll see more of them in 2015, but significant quantities in 2017. Look for alternative ways to power uh, domestic energy systems like the state of California looking at how to get faster and faster into renewables. Uh, look for people to continue to want to find a way to tax carbon tax, um, carbon fuels because they are destroying the planet. They're toasting us. And last but not least, if you do read that article by Bill McKibben, please note that when he wrote it last year, we were at 395 parts per million. Everybody says you weren't allowed to cross 400 or the planet was in jeopardy. We're at 405 today, folks. So we're past the point of no return here. We have got to do something to reduce the heat that we've already released because of the CO2 and that we'll continue to release every day till we get this carbon thing under control. I want to quickly end the show with a, a couple of comments on inflation. Uh, you started to see stories about it because of the oil companies. That's the only inflationary factor right now in the U.S. economy, uh, one of the few inflationary factors in the European economy. Um, that, that inflation effect will not be significant yet, although I am calling for increased inflation starting in the October-November time frame, and I think it will be tied to the, the Fed's um, decision to uh, reduce its purchases as well uh, as the overlay of inflationary pressures because of all of the bond buying that's gone on since 2008 to prop up the global economy. That means that eventually, not now, Eventually, there will be a play in gold. It's not here yet. It means you shouldn't be buying bonds, as I've already said. It's, you should be looking for stocks with uh, dividend payment policies that are historic and that are otherwise strong and can, and can continue to develop their dividend policy over time with their profitability. It means residential real estate will continue to go up. There, it, there's not a bubble there yet. I can explain why if someone wants to send me in a question. But um, the, the values in residential Real estate right now are real and will continue to rise. Um, the foreseeable future, meaning for the next quarter or two, I can't see beyond that in residential. Uh, and I think, you sh as I said in the last couple of shows, commercial real estate definitely is at uh, an optimum uh, pricing point right now where the, the prices are still reasonable and interest rates are very, very low. I believe that commercial real estate will become less desirable post-November as we have higher interest rates and as prices firm up for basically office and, and, and commercial properties. That's the lightning round. Uh, is there anything I missed, Matt, you wanted me to hit? Because I know we're out of time. Yeah, so one thing that we'd like to do in the lightning round is check in on past predictions. Uh, we checked with a friend of the show and former host of the show, Howard Smith, over at Morgan Stanley, about some of our recent predictions. Uh, we called gold uh, at, at, at its high point. We said sell at when gold was valued around 1690 in December of last year. Uh, now it is currently selling around $1,290 an ounce. That is, if you had sold when we told you to, if you own gold, you would have 
saved $410 an ounce or 25% of the value of the stock of, of the commodity. Uh, we also had recommended buying back into the stock market in December. At that time, the S&P was around 1420 uh, Today, it's over 1650 which is an increase of 16%. Uh, so following our advice, as we said, this is no strings attached advice from a nonprofit organization that cares about the future of business and cares about has a deep value set that helps inform our picks. Uh, we're working on the theory that, that those values and, and, and valuing companies and uh, commodities that, that make sense from that outlook is good for your portfolio. So stay tuned with us for these, for these stock picks. We'll do them every month, and we just appreciate everyone's feedback. Or if you have economic questions about specific stocks, bonds, uh, or asset classes, to please send us an email, and we'll try to get to them either on the show or off. That email is info at worldbusiness.org. With that, Rondo, I think we're going to wrap today's episode up. Yeah, I just want one correction. It's, I, I don't like to do stock picking per se. I mean, I will give stocks like I did today, Walgreens, as an example, just so people have some way to hold what I'm saying. Generally speaking, what we're going to do is keep focusing you on asset classes because what I want you to do is I want you to go to your financial advisor or your financial planner, and I want you to tell them, look, if Ronaldo's saying we ought to be getting out of bonds right now, tell your financial planner, get you out of bonds. They can put you right. where they want to put you. But, 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 but I don't want to be in the position of telling you what bonds to buy or sell. I will be telling you, for example, uh, when I see an opportunity um, in the municipals market. I will tell you when I see an opportunity to buy or sell in the gold, residential real estate, or, or other markets. Um, we'll be talking at some point about re real estate investment trusts, or REITs, and why that might be a good idea now. But I'm not going to send you to a specific REIT, and if I do mention one, it'll be by way of example. Again, we're here to give you the information you need so you can direct your own financial future so you can pros prosper from these changing times and have the, the, the information you need to have an intelligent conversation with your financial planner or if you're doing your own work so you can know how to guide yourself as you take care of your own nest egg, your 501c, your 401c, yeah, 401k or your IRA or your nest egg you're hoping to retire on. That's our goal. Excellent. And with that, on behalf of the World Business, Business Academy, thank you for joining us. Please come to our website at worldbusiness.org to connect with us in between shows. And tune in next month for the next episode of New Business, New Business Paradigms. Until then, thank you for listening, and please share this link. Thanks, everyone. Bye now.